This is Church of the Resurrection in Whedon, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Father Brett Kroll and is part seven of Revealing the Heart of God, A Journey Through the Minor Prophets. My name is Father Brett. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection, and this summer we're working through a series um, on the minor prophets. And I'm sure since we're a good bit through the summer, I won't be the first to tell you that they're not called the minor prophets because they're unimportant. They were called the minor prophets because they were all underage when they prophesied. <laughs> Just kidding. They're called the minor prophets because they're shorter than the other prophets. Uh, the books, that is, not the prophets themselves. <laughs> we have no problems with short prophets, do we, Father Stephen? None. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that the words of your prophet, the mighty prophet Habakkuk, would come down through the ages and that now by your Holy Spirit you'd bring your living word to us to shape us, to reform us, to transform us, and to give to us that vision of the life that you have for us to live as your people, your holy people. So we wait for the gift that you have. We are eagerly anticipating that it will come. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the word made flesh, Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. So all silliness aside, Habakkuk asks a very serious question. Turn in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 2, and I'll read 2, 3, and 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. The question that Habakkuk is asking is, why, O oh God, if you are a God of justice, if you are good and powerful, which I know you are to be, then why do you look on injustice and do nothing? Why do you see injustice and not act? And that's a question that perhaps you've batted around in a philosophy class as a, an exercise, and maybe it got a little bit more real to you, and you started thinking about it more seriously when you, you watch the news and you see pictures of a violent and cruel world imploding on itself. Or maybe it becomes personal when you lose your job because executives a few layers up decide that they want to hike their own salaries and so they make cuts down below. Or maybe it becomes downright excruciating when a friend betrays you or when mom or dad abandon the family and you're left all kinds of scared, mad, sad and asking the same question that Habakkuk asks. God, when injustice is all around, why haven't you done something? How could you let this happen? What are you going to do about it? So the question that Habakkuk the prophet is asking is very much pertinent to us today. And so we need this book as much as ever before to answer that question. And God's answer, as we look at the book of Habakkuk, his answer is, I am going to do something about it. I am sending judgment against injustice, but you must wait for the appointed time. So the book is composed of, of a couple complaints or, or questions that Habakkuk poses to God, and he answers. 
that's the bulk of chapter one and two, and then it concludes with a psalm that he, kind of res, as a response to that dialogue. And the first complaint is the one that we just read, verses two through four. And he's saying, why, why do you not hear? Well, of course God hears. He knows, he sees the injustice, but again, Habakkuk, he's like us. He wants the result to be immediate. When there's injustice, he wants God to act right away. So because he looks and he sees God not doing anything, he asks the question, where are you? Why are you letting this injustice happen? Now, there's a question that we might ask, who is he talking about? Is this injustice that's being perpetrated among the nations, as many other prophets that we've heard from this summer are denouncing the evil of the wickedness of the other nations? Or is it God's own people? And I think if we look at verse 4, it gives us a clue. He says, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Well, the law was given to Israel. And when Israel abdicates her duty to be the righteous and just society, I mean, if they had followed the law, if you actually read the law, it's beautiful in its construction of what a just society would and, and could be if they followed it. But Habakkuk is saying, we're not following the law, and there's more, right, um, there's more wicked than the righteous. They outnumber the righteous. And God, why are you standing idly by? So this is about the people of God who've gone astray and God's answer, is, his answer to the first question is verses 5 through 11 there in chapter 1. I won't read it all, but I'll sum it up. God's answer is basically, I see. I am doing something about it. I am sending judgment. I am sending the Chaldeans, or also called the Babylonians. And this is how judgment works among the nations. When one nation or people grows in its wickedness and, and injustice, it reaches a tipping point and when the Lord says, enough is enough, he sends another nation like a tidal wave to humble that nation and to bring it low. But the nation that has come in and swept in like a tidal wave, they too grow in injustice and wickedness. And so when the tipping point reaches for them, another nation comes in in a tidal wave. And so on and on, nations judge other nations. But the injustice continues. Actually, this vision of history is, is how Abraham Lincoln interpreted the Civil War. In his second inaugural address, just weeks before the end of the war and, and before his own assassination, here's what Lincoln says. Yet if God desires that the war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so it still must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So even Lincoln was, was reading, historically he was interpreting the Civil War as God's judgment on America for the sin of slavery, that we had built so much of our wealth on the backs of slaves. So God's response to Habakkuk, I see the injustice of my people, and I am sending Babylon to judge. Well, that brings about Habakkuk's second question, or his second complaint in verses 12 through 17, and, and I'll just read from 15 onward. He, and here Habakkuk is referring to the king of Babylon, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags, and he's talking about the peoples, all of them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet 
and he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So Habakkuk is saying, the king of Babylon has become luxuriously wealthy by invading and destroying all these other nations. Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Will the injustice go on forever? Because what Habakkuk is saying is, God, that's not really a great solution. Yeah, Judah is unjust, but Babylon, they're even worse. It's like those medications you see the advertisements for when the side effects are actually worse <laughs> than, than the thing itself. Try cuticle for uh, damaged and unhealthy cutic cuticles. But beware, it may cause vomiting, hair loss, shrunken teeth, and in rare cases, death. <laughs> and you're thinking, no thanks, I'll, I'll just live with moderately healthy cuticles, okay? So Habakkuk is saying, how is sending the Babylonians, how is that a satisfying solution? Because they also are unjust. And God's answer to Habakkuk, the second question, the second time, is the heart of the book of Hosea. So let's read this together now in chapter 2, starting at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. For behold, his soul is puffed up. Now speaking about the wicked one. His soul is puffed up. It is not upright or it is crooked within him. But in contrast, the righteous shall live by his faith. So verse 3 there points to a future judgment. Yes, Babylon will judge Judah. And yes, Babylon itself is unjust and therefore a time is coming when Babylon too will be judged. If you go back to verse 4, the first couplet, or the first part of that couplet, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him. Yes, this is referring to the king of Babylon, but in another way, it's representing all the unjust and wicked of the earth. And what God is saying is, if you look forward to the appointed time, there will be a day of reckoning. So this is true not only for the king of Babylon and not only for the wicked of Judah and of Babylon, but for all the wicked of the world, a judgment will come. Keep reading at the second part of verse 5. This is more describing what is the wicked man like? What is the king of Babylon and, and him as a symbol, a representative of all wickedness? What is it like? Well, his greed is as wide as shell, which is the grave, like death. He has never enough. He's always consuming, swallowing up others for his own advantage. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. That's the vision of the wicked man. Verse 6, the response, but shall not all these, all who? Those peoples who are being swallowed up and gathered in by injustice, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles and say. So verse 6 is saying, those who were the victims, 
they will rise up together with the righteous, and they will actually pronounce judgment on the wicked when the appointed time comes. So the rest of chapter 2, verse 6 through 20, is then this series of woes, five woes about what the king of Babylon was doing, how he was building wealth through injustice, and ultimately how he was worshiping idols. And again, not only the king of Babylon, but he as a symbol and as a representative of, of all wickedness. And so the victims and the righteous rise up at the appointed time, and with these woes, they pronounce judgment. In essence, they're saying, you thought you could get away with it, but everything that you've done to others is now coming back upon you. So God's answer to Habakkuk's second question, yes, I see the injustice of Babylon as well. I see all the wickedness. And I, yes, will judge Judah, but the instrument of my judgment against Judah will itself be judged. And ultimately, God is saying to Habakkuk and to us, all the wicked of the earth will be judged. And you, Habakkuk, back to chapter 2, verse 4. Look at the second part. The righteous one shall live by his faith. So verse 4 is really important. One half of the couplet is about the puffed up, the proud, the, the wicked man whose soul is not straight within him. The second part of the couplet is about the righteous one who will be preserved because he is righteous, because he remains faithful to the Lord. So God is saying to Habakkuk, as for you, when you see the violence and the wickedness all around, you wait for the appointed time, and you remain righteous. Stay faithful. And that's the Lord's word to us when we ask the same question. When we see the violence and the wickedness and the injustice around, and we, we wonder where God is, we look at Habakkuk and we remember the story isn't over. There is and there will be an appointed time and a day of reckoning. Every evil, every wrong will be dealt with. Sometimes that will happen within the course of this life, as we've seen evidenced in the Me Too campaign. These men who had been doing these detestable things in, in secret, thinking they would never get caught, now all of a sudden, many of them are losing their livelihoods and their reputations because the day of reckoning has come in this life for them. So sometimes it does happen in this life. But even if it does not happen in this life, the day of reckoning will come at the end. So the Christian teaching, what we do when we look at the prophets, and as they talk about the day of the Lord and the days of judgment when this nation will humble this nation or that nation will humble that one, what they're pointing to are close at hand, near historical things that, that did actually happen in history. But what the Christian teaching does is it takes that and it says, but this is pointing forward ultimately to a final day of judgment when judgment will sweep over the entire earth and all wickedness will be exposed when Jesus returns. So I want to read to you from the Apostle Peter writing in his second letter and listen closely to the language, how it mirrors the language of Habakkuk. So here's 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, there is an appointed time, a day of the Lord that is coming that will expose everything that has been done on the earth and show it for what it is and was. So the apostle continues, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? So like Habakkuk, Peter is saying, but as for you, wait for that day to come. And as you wait for it, pursue righteousness. Live the righteous life so that you will be preserved in the time of judgment. When the heavenly bodies will melt, and be dissolved. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So similar to Habakkuk, Peter is saying, there is an appointed time that will come. Wait for it and live righteously as you do. And the answer then to Habakkuk's, will this, will this injustice, will the violence go on endlessly forever? Will he continue emptying his net and killing mercilessly forever? We see that the Lord answers that once and for all, and he says, no. Evil will not go unpunished forever. Though sometimes the appointed time will feel a long way off. So does it seem slow to you sometimes. Remember the amazing words uh, from chapter 2, verse 3. The, the vision awaits its appointed time, but it hastens to the end. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will come. It will not delay, or could also be translated, it will not be late. So God's justice is kind of like Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet appears on the earth, or you can see it from the earth about every 75 years, which means that most of the time, you can't see it. But wherever it is in the solar system, it's on its way, it's on its circuit, back to be visible again from the earth. But even when it is visible from the earth, you look up in the sky, and it hangs in the sky for several months, and it seems slow, doesn't it? But in actuality, the comet is traveling at something like 150,000 miles per hour, which is fast enough for you to get to the moon and back in about three hours. So God's justice is like Halley's Comet. Though we don't always see it, we know it is coming. And like an eager amateur astronomer waiting for the comet, we wait for God's justice to come. And so the prophet's response turned to the very end of the book, verse 17 of chapter 3. His response then is of faith and hope even in the waiting time. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me to tread on high places. Though I do not see the vindication now, Habakkuk says, I know it is coming. So to the original question, 
of, God, why don't you do something when evil and violence are all around? God's answer is, I am going to do something. I am sending judgment. But if we think on that for only a little while, it's not too long before we, we start to realize that presents a problem for us, doesn't it? What about the injustice I have done? You know, the rabbis, before the time of Christ, had a really interesting translation and interpretation of chapter 2, verse 4. Instead of the righteous shall live by faith, they, they translated the righteous shall live by faithfulness. And they saw, in this verse in particular, they saw it as a summation of the entire 613 laws of Moses. And they said, do you want to know how to be preserved in the day of judgment? Do you want to know how you will be saved and how you will have life? Well, the righteous will live by their faithfulness to the law. And the New Testament tells us really clearly that's impossible. Nobody can live with that kind of perfect righteousness unto the law. And Habakkuk's vision, the one that's hastening towards the end, it concludes in verse 20 of chapter 2 with this stunning vision of the Lord in his holy temple and all the earth keeps silence before him. So after the woes, after the judgment pronounced on the wicked, then there's silence and this vision at the end of the judgment of God on his throne holding court in the heavens and before his holiness. Now even the victims and now even the righteous who had been pronouncing woes, in the light of his holiness, they're quiet. They're silent. They know that in the end, there's no more condemnation that they can bring. There's no more judgment that they can pronounce the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And according to that vision of righteousness, according to the holiness of God, will anybody claim, I am the righteous one. I deserve to be preserved when the time of judgment comes. If we're honest, we'll say, no. No one can claim that. So now the question of, God, what are you going to do about injustice? becomes, God, what are you going to do about my injustice? Are you going to judge me too? We might like to ask God, why is there injustice in the world? He might like to ask us the same question. He might say, look inside your own heart. What do you see? Are you not also proud? puffed up? Do you not also insist on your own way? Do you not also look down on others and suppose that your way alone is right, that you are superior and somehow you deserve better than others? Are you also not crooked in your soul, not upright? Is there not also this bentness in towards yourself that is called selfishness? Do you ever think of yourself first before others when you get a picture and there's a bunch of people in it, and you're in it, who's the first one you look at? Uh-huh. It's you. We all do it. Do you ever make decisions that benefit you instead of others? And as we look inside, we realize that the same pride 
and selfishness that are basically responsible for all the injustice in the world have a place in our own heart too. So just this week, we had a fight at dinner about cherries. And I might say that they were very tasty cherries. But as the, the cherries in the bowl began to go away one by one, I decided I better help myself to a good helping before they're all gone. So I, I grabbed a few, put them on my plate. And then the kids started noticing that the, bowl, the, the number of cherries in the bowl was shrinking. So, of course, they started fighting and bickering about, you know, who was getting the cherries because, did I mention these were really tasty cherries? They were really good. And as they were fighting and bickering about who got more and who will get the rest, I grabbed a few more for myself. <laughs> they were really tasty. But the problem with these tasty cherries is that cherries leave behind evidence, don't they? And so in the middle of, of the kids, you know, fighting back and forth, Teresa looks over at my plate and she goes, I know why there are so few cherries in the bowl. Look at all the pits on Papa's plates. And sure enough, I, I had the fat portion of, of the cherry pits on my plate. And all I could say in response was, those were really good cherries, weren't they? A funny story, but, but actually, I, I did repent of that sin. It was selfish. It was gluttonous. I, I just wanted it for me because it tasted good. And we might say, ah, it's just cherries. But how many injustices happen every day because somebody says, ah, it's just a few dollars. Oh, it's just a few unimportant people that will be affected by this decision or by this action I'm about to take. So if you've ever selfishly grabbed for more cherries... You're the same as the king of Babylon. And that's the same mindset that in a more developed form becomes the gun violence in Chicago, becomes the regime tyranny in Syria, becomes the white-collar crime that cheats unsuspecting people out of their life savings. And so now we have a question, God, what are you going to do about my injustice? And it might be that God's answer to this question is the most important response that we hear from the Lord this morning. And his response is, I'm sending my son, Jesus Christ, not for judgment, but for mercy. And in fact, I'm sending him to deliver from judgment any who come to him asking for mercy. The judgment that you deserve for the part that you've played in contributing to the evil and justice in the world, Jesus is saying, I've come for that. And it's amazing how Jesus accomplishes all of this. There's nothing like it in any other religion, especially when you compare it to other religions that also teach about a day of judgment. First of all, Jesus is the only instrument of judgment that God will use who himself will not need to be judged because he is not unjust. He's perfect. And as we saw in Habakkuk and throughout all the prophets, when nation is used to judge other nation, eventually that nation also needs to be judged because they too are wicked and sinful. And so that cycle of unjust instruments of judges bringing judgment on other nations just continues. And you ask, where does that cycle end? And the answer is it finally ends in Jesus because he alone will be the instrument of judgment in the hand of the Lord who himself will not need to be judged. And yet amazingly, though he does not need to be judged, that's exactly what he does. He comes under judgment by his choice. 
And whereas all the other nations that were used as instruments of judgment, they came and they brought the judgment upon the guilty. They brought the judgment upon those who deserved it. Jesus instead says, I will take, whoops, there's a step there. I will take the judgment upon myself. I won't put the punishment on you. I will take it on me. Incredible. So again, Peter says, though he committed no sin in his mouth, there was no deceit found in him. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but rather he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So it's true what I said earlier that, yes, every wickedness, every evil, every violence will be accounted for. Everything done to you, if you've suffered wickedness and violence and injustice from another, there will be a day of reckoning for that. You can count on it. You will have justice. But now in the cross of Jesus, there is something available that's even better, mercy and forgiveness. And by the cross and through the power of Jesus' own forgiveness that he gave to those who most unjustly killed him, by that power alone, you are now able to forgive those who have sinned against you as God has been merciful to you. Now you can be merciful to others. And that, too, is God's answer for what are you going to do, God, about injustice in the world? He's saying, well, I'm sending my church. And unlike Babylon, they're not coming with swords and spears. They're coming with forgiveness and meekness and humility. And when they're sinned against, they will forgive because it is their code and creed to forgive, to bless those who who hate them, to pray for their enemies, and to not repay evil with evil, but instead to repay evil with good. And you and I can do this even when we're sinned against because we can, like Jesus, entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So as we come to the Eucharist today, let us come repenting first of our own pride and selfishness and of the part that we've had to play in contributing to the injustice of the world. And let us come ready to forgive those who have done evil to us and mistreated us. And finally, let us come asking for the grace to live righteously in the hope of the coming of the Lord, remembering again the words of the Apostle Peter that we heard earlier. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for this, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. By the grace of God, it shall be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.